fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Julia. Charles, if you want to just tag back in, I feel like that, uh, <laughs> that prayer lifted my spirits. So uh, thank you for leading us so well in that, friends. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we are in this uh, summer teaching series looking at the Old Testament book of Psalms. Uh, the Psalms are a collection of prayers that are intended to uh, help us to experience loving communion with the living God. And if you've read through the Psalms, one of the things that maybe you've noticed is that the Psalms really give us language. Uh, they teach us uh, how to come before God uh, with whatever emotion we might be feeling, uh, with whatever circumstance we might be facing, and to bring that uh, into God's presence. And that certainly is true of Psalm 16, which Julia just read for us a moment ago. In many ways, I think you could say that Psalm 16 is all about how do we deal with our fear? How do we deal with our anxiety? How do we bring our fear and our anxiety into the presence of God in the kind of way where having done so, we are then able to move out into the world with a greater courage and confidence and calm. And, you know, I think that is incredibly uh, relevant for all of us. You know, whether you are even a Christian or not here today, I think that all of us could say, yeah, how do I deal with my anxiety? You know, we live in a deeply anxious culture. Some people have said that our culture is the most anxious culture in history. And maybe every culture feels that way to some degree about itself, but you look at the rapid pace of change in our world today and how that can be so disruptive. You look at the way that we have media right at our fingertips, and you know, often the, the stories in the news, they're actually designed to sort of ratchet up that sense of anxiety so that we will be drawn to them. We recognize even the way in which over the last two years, this COVID pandemic has done so much to escalate and feed that, that sense of, of anxiety that we may be feeling. I think that all of us, to some degree, are asking the question, even if that anxiety is not overwhelming or debilitating, how do I deal with my fear? In a way where it doesn't overwhelm me. In a way where it doesn't control me. Where it doesn't keep me from being able uh, to enter into opportunities that are in front of me, where it doesn't keep me from being able to reach my potential, where it doesn't keep me from being able to do the things that I know are right, even when it's hard or scary to do them? How do we um, deal with our fear in a way that allows us to be people who actually can move out into the world with confidence and courage and calm? And of course, our culture has some ideas for how to do that, does it not? You know, just like every culture in history, our culture has some suggestions for how to, to deal with our anxiety. Maybe, maybe some of those have been helpful to you. Uh, maybe some of you have taken an anti-anxiety medication, and that's been helpful to you. And if that's the case, then that's, that's wonderful. 
Maybe you've found that just certain routines in your life, even just regular exercise is a way to help get you out of some of those spiraling thought patterns. Maybe you've seen a counselor and you've gotten some really good advice, some really good practices for, for how to practically deal with those anxious thoughts as they begin to, to spiral. And maybe some of you even have used what's, what's known as the worst case scenario method. Anybody watch the TV show, This Is Us? Any fans of This Is Us? Some, maybe not. It's a pretty tear-jerking um, sort of, of show, but um, you know, there's one couple in that show, uh, their names are Beth and Randall, and, and when they find themselves in an anxious situation, uh, they'll go down this method of the worst-case scenario. It almost becomes kind of like a game for them where they try to kind of outdo one another with this, just these, these kind of outlandish worst-case scenarios of, of how something could go terribly wrong. And, and when they do that, when they go back and forth in this way, they actually find that it helps them um, because by the end, they, they feel a little bit calmer because they think, well, it's probably not going to be that bad. And so we feel a little bit better about the situation now. Maybe you found methods like that to be helpful. And you know, in a way, that's actually something that David, the psalmist, does um, in Psalm 27, which, which we did not read this morning, but which I debated. I went back and forth. Psalm 16, Psalm 27, they're so similar to each other. But you know, in Psalm 27, David kind of plays out this worst case scenario. Um, he says, though an army should besiege me. Then he says, though a war should break out against me. Then he says, though my mother and my father should forsake me. And you know, the wild thing for David is that these are actually things that he experienced. You know, David actually knew what it was to have enemies with real weapons who were wanting to take his life. That's pretty terrifying. David knew what it was for his own family members to turn against him, to betray him, to want to actually seek his life. David goes through these kind of worst-case scenarios, and then he says, even though these things should happen, I will be confident. I will not be afraid. I will be all right. I will be okay. And you see, David's approach is actually a little bit different from Beth and Randall's approach because they do the worst case scenarios and they feel better because they think, well, surely these things won't actually happen to us. David's approach is different. He says, even if these things do happen to me, these things did happen to him, he says, I'll still be okay. I'll still be confident. I still will be all right. He says in Psalm 16, he says, my flesh will dwell secure. He says, I will not be shaken. I think the question for all of us is where does David, the psalmist, get that kind of confidence in the face of a scary and frightening world? So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at Psalm 16, and I want to ask two questions. First, what is the secret to that kind of confidence? And then secondly, how do we get it? So let's walk through those two questions together. So here's the first. What is the secret to that kind of confidence? And I think we get our answer pretty much right out of the gate in verse 2. Did you notice this? David there says, I say to the Lord, Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. 
Now, what what does that mean? He's not saying that he has no other good things in his life, but what he is saying is that by comparison, God, you are the greatest thing in my life. Every other good thing in my life pales in comparison to you. You are my supreme treasure. If I have you, I have the very best thing I could possibly have. And you know, that's where David begins his prayer, but he actually repeats this throughout the rest of the prayer. Did you notice in verse five, he says, God, you are my cup and my portion. Verse six, he says, God, you are my inheritance. Better than any other inheritance that I could receive from my family, you're my inheritance. Then in verse 11, he says, God, in your presence, that is, if I'm near you, if I have you, that's where the fullness of joy is found. In other words, what David is saying is the secret to a fearless life is to know God as your highest good. The secret to a fearless life is to know God as your greatest joy. To say, God, if I have you, I have the most significant, the greatest, the best possible thing that I could have for life in this world. To know God as your greatest joy, that's the secret to a fearless life. To put it to you another way would be this. It would be to say our fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of whatever is our greatest good. Our fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of whatever is our greatest good. Let me give you a few examples to show you what I mean. So there are a lot of things that might be most important to us other than God. Uh, One example, probably prominent in our culture, maybe even for some of us uh, functionally in this room, would be wealth. If I have enough money, if I'm financially stable, financially secure, if I have enough wealth, it will be well with my soul. I'll be all right. I'll be okay. And so we think about it a lot. We gaze on it in our minds. We imagine, right, if I could just make more, if I could save more, if I could accumulate more, then everything would be well for me. For many people, wealth ends up being that greatest good. But is wealth vulnerable? Absolutely. You know, David Foster Wallace um, once put it this way. He said, worship wealth and you'll never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough and you'll always be afraid that you're going to lose it. That it might be taken away from you. You know, one moment the market is up, the next the market is down. One moment you have a job, maybe you lose that job. You don't have that source of income. Maybe your investments, they go south. You experience a financial disaster. Some of you have been through that in your life before. You know that wealth is incredibly vulnerable. And because wealth is vulnerable, we experience anxiety, a lot of fear about losing it, not having enough of it because it's a very vulnerable greatest good. Let me give you another example. Maybe that seems a little superficial. So we say, no, not wealth. Maybe more, it's my health. As long as I have my health, it's well with my soul. As long as I'm healthy, I will be okay and all is well with me. But again, our health is vulnerable, is it not? I remember seeing this um, uh, secondhand when 
I, I used to work out at a, a YMCA, and I, I tried to get to know um, some of the other people who were often uh, working out there. It was kind of a chance to build relationship, and, and who knows, maybe even talk to some of them uh, about Jesus. And I remember there was this one guy who was always there. Anybody know somebody like that uh, at the gym? They're always there whenever you show up, and maybe they come at the same times, or maybe they're there every time. But this guy, I think, was there every time. His name was Petter, and Petter was in his 40s, but he was in better shape than most guys in their 20s. He was incredibly fit, and he knew everything about nutrition and everything about, you know, these smoothies that he would drink. And, 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 and one day, I came to the gym, and Petter wasn't there. And after a couple of weeks, I remember asking another guy about him. I said, hey, have you seen Petter? He said, you haven't heard. So Petter has stage four pancreatic cancer, and he doesn't have very long to live. And here was this guy who, who for him, everything was about his, his health and his fitness. And in just a moment, it was gone. Our health is incredibly vulnerable. Some of you know that. Some of you have gotten those sudden diagnoses. Your family has gotten those diagnoses. I know of one family in our church um, who are, are grieving uh, that loss of, of health and loss of life even this very week. Our health is vulnerable. So we, we fear there's a lot of anxiety that comes when it's our highest good, even our family. You might say, my family, that's what is most important to me. As long as everything is good with my family, I will be okay. And you know, maybe you get the family that you long for. Maybe you have a wonderful marriage and you have great kids. And if so, that is such a blessing from God. But you know, family is also vulnerable. Maybe your kids have, have different issues and those fill you with anxiety. Or God forbid, your marriage breaks down and your spouse betrays your trust or something happens to one of your family members. And, and listen, if your family is your highest good, you will be devastated when that happens because family too is vulnerable. You know, St. Augustine, who is a theologian in the fourth century, um, he wrote about this and he had a lot of insight. He said, a lot of our anxiety, a lot of our fear that comes from taking these really good things that God gives us, like health or like wealth or like family or, or career or comfort or security. And he says it, it comes from taking these good things and then starting to treat them as if they're your God thing. Not just things that you want to have, but where you say, I have to have that to be happy. I have to have that for it to be well with my soul. And he says, when we do that, when we take that good thing and we put it in that place of a supreme thing, it brings forth all sorts of fear and anxiety because these things are vulnerable. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that you should never be anxious. I'm not saying that, that if you're a, a, a person for whom God is your supreme thing, you're never going to have any fear or worry. I mean, that, that, that's kind of un, unrealistic. Not only um, is it unrealistic, but, but actually it's in some sense ungodly in the sense that look at Paul in, in 2 Corinthians. Paul actually there says that he carries with him the anxiety for the churches. And, and simply what that means is that Paul cares about the churches. And of course, if you care about your kids, you care about your family, you care about your work, you care about your health, uh, you're going to have some concern, you're going to have some anxiety, some worry. But I'll tell you, when that worry becomes overwhelming, when you can't think about anything else, when it becomes overwhelming, even debilitating, that's a pretty good indication 
that we've taken one of those good things and we've elevated it to that place of the supreme thing. And what David is telling us in this psalm is he says, you want to know the secret to a fearless life? It's to know God as your highest good, to know him as your supreme treasure. Because I don't know if you, if you know this or not, but God is not vulnerable, right? Nothing can take him away. Nothing can take you away from him, even death itself. Did you notice David says that in verse 10? He says, you will not abandon me to the grave. Not even death itself can separate me from your love. And so the secret to a fearless life then is to know God as your highest good, to be able to say, regardless of whatever happens to me today, God, nothing can take you away from me. You are my highest joy. My flesh can dwell secure. So that's the secret. But the second question is, how do you get that? Because I'll tell you, honestly, it's one thing for me to stand up here and to um, intellectually affirm and to say, God should be our highest good. I'm sure many of you would agree with that and you would affirm that. It's one thing to say that intellectually. But isn't it quite a different thing to feel that, to experience that, to sense that reality on your heart that God is your greatest good in the kind of way that starts to push out the fear and anxiety and instead to fill you with confidence and joy and courage? How do we know God and experience God in that way as our greatest good? And I think in many ways, that's what David is teaching us um, to do through this psalm. He's teaching us to pray in the kind of way um, that actually takes what we believe about God and moves it down into our heart so that we sense it as a reality. And it pushes out our fear and fills us with courage. So what I want to do in our remaining time is to just um, suggest to you there are four practices for learning to pray in the kind of way that pushes out our fear and fills us with confidence and joy. Here they are. Here's the first one. You gotta learn how to set the Lord before you in prayer. Did you see that in uh, verse eight? David says, I have set the Lord always before me. Now, a lot of the counsel that our culture tends to give us about dealing with fear um, has to do with expelling negative thoughts. So you're really worried or you're spiraling down this kind of irrationally fearful path. You need to learn to control those thoughts. You need to learn to expel those negative thoughts. Don't give in to those negative thoughts. Uh, push them out of your mind. And that may be helpful. Maybe that's helped um, some of you to practice that. Um, but David's approach is actually a little different. Um, Jesus' approach is a little bit Different. Maybe you remember that place in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, do not be anxious. Do not worry. Okay, Jesus, how do we do that? Do you remember what he says? He says, consider the lilies of the field. And he says, consider the birds of the air. Think, ponder, reflect, consider. Okay, I'm thinking about birds. I'm thinking about lilies. What am I supposed to think? Well, think about the way in which your father provides for them. 
And then think about, gosh, if God provides that way for lilies and for for birds, how much more so does God care about me than he does about lilies and birds? And so therefore, how much more should I be confident that he's going to provide for me? Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying not just expel the negative, fearful thoughts. He's saying you need to actually redirect your thoughts. You need to focus your thoughts in a new direction. You need to think about who is God for you. Set the Lord before your mind. Begin to meditate on the truth of who is God for you in a way where it begins to take that truth and to shine it as as a reality on your heart. And you see, that's what David is essentially doing in this psalm. Beginning in verse 2, when he says, I say to the Lord, Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You are my highest joy. Regardless of what happens to me today, nothing can take that from me. Can you imagine maybe how you would approach your day differently tomorrow if you were to start the day just with that simple prayer? To wake up when those fears start running and to simply say, God, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You're my highest joy. And you know, by the way, when David says, I say that, he literally means it, like speaks it out loud, I believe. You know, we we see this all throughout uh, the Psalms, these verbal cues. Do you remember we talked about this in our Lord's Prayer series, if you were with us then, that that the Bible assumes when we pray that we're going to be praying out loud. You know, why does Jesus talk about going into a room and shutting the door so that nobody can hear you? Presumably because you're praying out loud. Why do we have all of Jesus' prayers recorded? Because he was praying out loud. I think the idea that we would just sort of pray in our minds or that we would read quietly to ourselves, that's actually uh, something that's only been developed in the last couple hundred years. But if you really want to pray in a way where you're saying, how can I get this truth that I believe about God down into my heart where I actually feel it and experience it as reality, I would encourage you to pray out loud. It engages your whole being. If you're not doing that already, that's what David is doing here. He's meditating out loud on the truth of who God is for him. He does it in verse two, then he does it in verse five. He says, God, you hold my lot. What does that mean? It means, God, you hold my life in your hands. And if my life is in your hands, then it is safe with you. Now, verse 11, when he says, God, you make known the path of life in your presence is the fullness of joy. What he's doing is he's setting the Lord before his mind and he's meditating, he's praying, he's talking to God about who God is for him in a way that begins to bring that reality home to his heart. That's really the first and probably most important practice to learn from this psalm. If, you, if you're not doing that yet, I would encourage you, learn to, to meditate on God in prayer in that way. But there's three more practices, and each is a little more brief, so we'll walk through those. Here's the second practice. If you want to push out your fear and anxiety in prayer, pray away your other gods. To learn to pray away your other gods. Did you see this in verse 4? David says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. I'm not going to worship these other gods, he says. And you remember, we said a lot of our fear and anxiety comes from the fact that we take these good things and we turn them into gods, right? 
and we, we elevate them to our supreme good, and because they're vulnerable, we feel this fear and anxiety about losing them. And so part of what it means um, to be able uh, really to, to, to get that reality home to your heart, to find your greatest good in God, is to learn to pray away your other gods. How do you do that? Follow your fears. Follow your anxieties. God, why am I so anxious about my sermon this Sunday? Why am I so anxious about getting up and saying something about the, the Roe v. Wade decision at the start of the service? Why am I so anxious about this conversation that I'm going to have with somebody later today? Why am I so anxious about how this particular circumstance uh, might play out uh, for our church? Why am I so worried about that? And then to ask yourself, okay, what maybe is that good thing that I'm treating like a God thing? That I'm acting as if I have to have that in order to be happy. The approval of other people, maybe comfort, maybe security, maybe wealth, maybe the, the, the praise or approval of your kids, whatever it might be, follow your fears. Follow your anxiety to lead you to what that other God might be and then confess it before God and say, God, that is not my God. That cannot save me. It only multiplies sorrows. My joy is not in my job. It's not in my bank account. It's not in the approval of my kids. It's not in what other people think about me. Today, God, my joy is in you. You are my God. I'm going to worship you today, not this other God. Do you know how to do that? To pray away the other gods in a way that starts to push out that fear. Here's a third practice we learn. Bless God for his counsel. Bless him for his counsel. I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of my worry and anxiety on a day-to-day -day basis comes from things that I really want to happen that haven't happened yet. There's some outcome that I really want to take place, but I'm not in control of it. And, and, and so I worry about it. I'm anxious about it, and I think, what if it doesn't happen, or what if it doesn't happen when I want it to happen? And I spend a lot of time worrying about this particular thing that I want to take place. And, and when David says, bless the Lord for his counsel, here's what he means. You know, Derek Kidner, who's a commentator uh, on the Psalms, he says that word counsel, it doesn't mean like a particular piece of advice God has given David. He means God's counsel in the sense of God's wisdom, his general counsel for how he directs and runs the world in our lives. It's like when Paul in, in Ephesians 1 says that God ordains everything according to the counsel of his will, his wisdom for how he orders life. So what it means to bless God for his counsel is this. The thing you're worried about, take that to God and say, God, I really want this to happen. I think it would be really good for this to happen for all these different reasons why. And yet, if it doesn't happen when I want it to happen, I trust that you know the best timing. If it doesn't happen at all, I'm going to be disappointed. I'm going to be discouraged. But I trust that you're wise and you see the big picture in a way that I do not. I trust you. To bless the Lord for his counsel means to take that very thing that you're most anxious about and to be able to surrender it to him. And say, okay, God, you get to decide how this plays out in a way that starts to bring calm and courage and confidence. And then here's the last practice. Maybe this is the most comforting of all. It's to learn to look at God's right hand. 
Do you notice in verse 11, David says, God, at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. What's the deal with the right hand? You know, in an ancient monarchy, and David would have known this as an ancient king, the right hand was the seat of highest honor. If you got to sit at the king's right hand, that was the seat of greatest honor. That was the seat of greatest privilege. You would be um, recipient of of so many great um, rewards and blessings to sit at the king's right hand. And, And David knows this. He says, at your right hand, then are pleasures forevermore. And yet, friends, let me ask you, who is at God's right hand? Who is seated at God's right hand? It's Jesus. It's David's far greater descendant in the kingly line of David. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. The New Testament tells us that after Jesus left his throne in heaven, took on our flesh, went to a cross, suffered, died for all of our sins, rose bodily from the dead, he ascended to heaven. And what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God, which is the place that is absolutely due to him because he deserves the seat of greatest honor, the highest reward for what he has done for us. And when we look up at the right hand of God, we see Jesus, the one who loved us so much that he was willing to do that for us. But you know what else we see at the right hand of God? You know who else is seated at the right hand of God? It's actually not just Jesus. The New Testament tells us that we are seated at the right hand of God too. Now, not literally, you're seated right here in uh, the sanctuary, but legally, legally speaking, in the eyes of God, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, your life is so bound up with his that God sees you as though your sins are so completely removed from you, as though Jesus's obedience and perfect record is so completely credited to you that now God delights in you and he honors you and he rewards you the same way that he delights in and rewards and honors his eternal son, Jesus. And when you in prayer look up and you see Jesus and you see yourself seated with Jesus, what that does is it begins to make all of those other things that we want and that we fear losing start to pale in comparison to the reward, to the honor, to the glory, to the inheritance, the eternal pleasures that are stored up for us in this Jesus. Friends, do you know how to pray in these ways? Do you know how to set the Lord before your mind and meditate on who he is for you? Do you know how to pray away your other gods as you follow your fears to them? Do you know how to bless God for his wisdom and counsel, even in the areas you're most worried about? And do you know how to look at the right hand of God and see Jesus and who you are in him? And I promise you, as you learn to do that, you are going to find, like David, that God begins to be your supreme good in a way that you sense on your heart in a way that starts to push out anxiety and fear and bring greater courage and confidence and calm so that you're gonna be able to say with David, my heart is glad, my being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure. So let's pray as we come to the Lord's table this morning.
Heavenly Father, there are so many days when our heart echoes those words that David prayed to you. Preserve me, O God. We live constantly with different anxieties and fears and concerns that run through our hearts and our minds. And yet, God, all the while, you are inviting us to find our refuge in you. God, I pray for us as a church that we would be a people who first and foremost would know what it is for you to be our supreme good, to be able to say, I have no good apart from you. God, in many ways, our sin is seeking to find our good apart from you, looking for other things to be our God, wanting to be our own God. And yet this morning, we confess that we are not God, that you are God, that you are good, and that you are the only one who can make our flesh truly dwell secure. So we pray that you would teach us to come to you, to pray to you, to set you before our minds. Thank you that we can do that with every confidence that you are for us, that you are absolutely committed to us, that not even death itself can separate us from your love. And we know that because of what we affirm at this table today, because we see the costly love of Jesus for us who is now seated at your right hand. We know that we are safe and secure in him. I pray that you would bring that reality home to our hearts, even in a unique way as we receive the Lord's Supper this morning. And for any who do not yet know you in that way, I pray that they too would come to trust in Jesus as their savior and their refuge. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed,